We are starting, though, talking about a new tax. And you might recall this. The Ministry of Finance in this province introduced a bill into the legislature presenting a new major events municipal and regional district tax. And that is the one that could see up to 2.5% on short-term accommodation sites, such as short-term rentals and hotels. The idea cities or municipalities can raise money when needed to put on big events. The city of Vancouver would be doing it for the hosting of the FIFA 2026 World Cup. But what might this actually look like? Well, Ingrid Jarrett is joining us now, president of the BC Hotel Association. Ingrid, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for doing this because it does seem that even though this has been put out there and we know a bit about the tax, it seems like there are a lot of details that haven't been defined at this point. So what is your take on what this tax might look like if it comes in? Well, you know, we've the city of Vancouver has applied for this tax to support the costs of hosting the FIFA World Cup. Uh, which is in 2026. Um, You know, the hotel community as a whole in Vancouver supports hosting FIFA. They're excited. It's it's the largest sporting event currently in the world. It provides an enormous opportunity to profile British Columbia to the world. And we are looking at lagging international recovery numbers. So that international market the exposure and the um, connection with the other host uh, communities and countries is a really important and very valuable thing for British Columbia to once again be sort of on the top 10 or on the world stage. So there's some very positive things there. Now, there's a lot of details that still need to be worked out, and we are working uh, very actively with our ministry and with finance and with the hotel community. So I need to just cite that we really appreciate the uh, ongoing conversation and the details that still have to be worked out. This additional MRDT is, um, you know, there, there, it is controversial, uh, and we haven't sort of figured out the language to make sure that the scope and scale of the large events that they have uh, approved this for, it's currently only approved for FIFA. And so the other really large-scale events would be the Olympics, although not 2030, but potentially another one. Um, You know, things like Expo, those people will remember Expo 86, which was an enormous uh, event over quite some uh, many days to promote and profile British Columbia to the world. And so when we look at the scale of those kind of events, there's very few that would be eligible for an additional MRDT. There, right. also, there also is quite a bit of funding through the provincial government for all kinds of events that are ongoing. So, you know, the kind of events that are already um, sort of supported through event funding or summer games, winter games. Um, you know, we've had um, the convention center expansion. Um, and then we've also had, you know, other events like marathons, Skate Canada, uh, Alpine Championships, Canada Cup, you know, all kinds of other events that have another avenue and access for revenue to support them.
Right. Okay. And so, so we know kind of the scope or the, or the types of events that this could be used for. Do we know though the time the time frame? Because the the BC government in bringing this in uh, said it was a, a time limited, dedicated funding tool that communities can apply for, and they can apply for this through Destination BC. But if it's to offset the costs of putting on a games, wouldn't this have to be brought in well in advance of an event like that? Well, certainly. I think, first of all, we're looking to the city of Vancouver and the province to update uh, their uh, anticipated budget. And then along with that budget and anticipated costs, that will uh, earmark the length of time and the amount uh, that the MRDT would be collected for. Now, in addition to that, there needs to be transparent third-party reporting. These are uh, these are funds that both the city, the province, the federal government, as well as the hotel sector will be collecting. So there's a lot of work that still needs to be done around uh, the application is in, legislation is there, but we still have to develop the regulation. And then we also have to develop the language and the policy, which will lay out the specifics of eligibility. And and because one thing that struck me, and again, I know that these details haven't been worked out, and this is still what the work that this work is ongoing. But if somebody was say staying in Vancouver and they had nothing to do, they weren't here for FIFA, they they weren't interested in FIFA. But if somebody was staying in Vancouver prior to the FIFA event, would they then be paying this extra tax for the event? But it's not something that that party, as a tourist or, or a couple or a family or what have you. Uh, they would then be kind of funding an event that they have no intention of going to and aren't aren't connected to at all. That could well be the case. We do not have the timeline of when this uh, additional MRDT will come into into effect. But certainly uh, the concept is that it it is started to collect prior to the event and that it ends, uh, you know, with once the budget is approved, you can anticipate how much it will actually uh, generate. And then that would determine the amount of time that is collect- collected. So you are correct. If it comes into uh, effect in 2023, for example, uh, there would be from 2023 to 2026, or that length of time is yet to be determined, uh, that uh, visitors to Vancouver would be contributing to the FIFA-specific uh, MRDT. Right, okay. Um, and, and any concerns in that, that that might be a factor if somebody's deciding, oh, I'm going to go stay in this city, maybe you'll stay somewhere else? I, I get it. it's not a huge amount of money when we're talking about a maximum of 2.5%, but there, there w- could be people that look at that and think, well, no, I'm not going to pay extra when I can just go next door and not pay it. Yeah, you know, the, uh, additional taxation is also always a concern, Um, You know, certainly there are enormous costs to put on an event of this scale. And I think the important thing is is that we look at the economic impact, the opportunity for sponsorship contribution and, uh, you know, jobs and all kinds of, there's all different factors that are very positive to hosting this. You know, the negative is, how are we going to do it in a responsible manner, given the costs? Until we really see those numbers, it's very difficult for us to 
come out with a position of how much we support and for what length of time. I do think that there always is an, an issue with, with additional taxation, and especially one that is determined only for the City of Vancouver. Obviously, an event of this scale will impact the province as a whole, and currently this is only being collected in the Metro Vancouver area, where certainly the Greater Vancouver area will be positively affected in many ways. I think there still is a lot of work that needs to be done, and I am encouraged that we're at the table and uh, with the provincial government and the city of Vancouver, we really need now to roll up our sleeves and make sure that we have the reality of, of the costs and the benefits um, all figured out. All right. And Ingrid, just one other question then. Do you know as well that with the details, the, the money and again, uh, cities of Vancouver in this case would go, apply through Destination BC. Do we have an idea though exactly specifically where that money will go and are you confident that hotels will benefit? Well, I certainly think um, the amount of people demand and, you know, we have we have reference and impact from FIFA being in other places previously. So we, we do know that. We know that the hotels are supportive of large-scale events for many reasons. It, it really puts British Columbia on the world stage. It also is the type of traveler that is very beneficial to British Columbia and British Columbia businesses as a whole. Um, you know, there there is a is a measurable benefit. But at the same time, we really need to know what that budget looks like, what the costs are, and that the MRD, this additional uh, tax will go specifically to support FIFA and those specific costs that are uh, attributed to the hosting of FIFA. And any idea then on a timeline when you and others might get answers to those questions? I do not have that timeline, Jill, unfortunately, but I can tell you we are actively working together to make sure that it's not only understood and anticipated, but that that language is what it needs to to be to to fence the uh, ability to uh, make sure that those large-scale events are are what this additional tax would be used for moving forward. All right. Ingrid Jarrett, thank you so much for joining us and for uh, helping kind of fill in some of those blanks on this today. Appreciate your time. You're most welcome. Thank you so much. Well, if you are one of the hundreds of thousands of people waiting for your Nexus card or for your interview for the FAST program, you'll want to listen to this. An open letter has now been signed by almost 60 business associations in this country, and they are calling on Canada and the United States to restore service to Nexus and FAST. FAST is the free and secure trade to, to restore service to those applicants as quickly as possible, saying that having these delays is just not acceptable. Joining us now to talk more about this letter is Perrin Beattie, President and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Perrin, thank you so much for making the time for us today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about this? uh, Again, almost 60 business associations have signed this letter. What exactly is this letter calling for? What we're doing is to ask the two governments to stop squabbling with each other it's, it's like kids in the schoolyard and to put travelers, the traveling public in Canada, the United States and, and the economies of our two countries first and fix the problem. None of this is, is uh, unmanageable. It just requires the political will to make it happen. Uh, 
It does seem like there has been a lot of back and forth in that both sides have accused the other of holding the program hostage. What is your take on what is happening here? Well, what what we have is the two governments just more concentrating more on bureaucratic convenience for you know for themselves than they are on the needs of the traveling public. As a result, then we've seen the backlog in terms of applications grow to almost half a million. Uh, I was informed last week by the U.S. ambassador that at the, at the current time it's at 490,000. And as a consequence, then this is having a serious impact on the ability of people to to get program to, to get processed and to be able to move across the border. And in the case of Canada, where the Nexus program is used as our domestic traveling uh, trusted traveler program, it has a serious domestic impact as well. And but are you hearing from either side or hearing from uh, from officials as to to what it is that has stalled things? The 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 fundamental issue. It's as if, really, as as if they're debating about the flowers and the rug. The fundamental issue is that the Americans are saying they will not reopen processing in Canada unless their Customs and Border Protection officers uh, who are processing Nexus applications are given the same protections in Canada under Canadian law as U.S. as the same officer would be receiving if he were down the hall working in. in uh, pre-clearance, and indeed it often is the same person. Canada says this is a question of sovereignty, that uh, that it will treat the two differently because pre- in pre-clearance you're in essence passing into the other country. The Americans say it's the same people in nearby facilities doing the same job of, de- of trying to decide whether a traveler should be admissible into the United States, and our response is fix it. Right. But is the main difference, though, from, from what I, the, the way I understood it was that they wanted it treated the same way. And that would mean that officers, American officers working in the Nexus centers or the FAST centers would be able to carry firearms. No. Um, people initially made the suggestion that it was all about firearms, but both governments now concede that it's not. Uh, the issue is if an American officer is accused of of um, some offense in Canada related to their work, uh, are, do they have the sort of protections that other that that an American officer would have in the case of preclearance or somebody working for the U.S. Consulate General in Vancouver or for the U.S. Embassy, where uh, they would be accountable under American law as opposed to Canadian law? That's uh, a privilege that we grant to diplomats and others representing countries from around the world and that our diplomats and representatives received in the in the U.S. and elsewhere as well. Okay. So what changed then, or, or, or what do you think has changed in that it seemed like things worked fine before everything shut down during the pandemic? So why is this just becoming an issue now? What happened was the Americans at the time that uh, the Nexus processing offices were shut down in Canada during the pandemic the Americans said to the Canadians, look, we have an outstanding issue here that hasn't been resolved, and we will not reopen the Canadian offices unless that's resolved to our satisfaction before. It hasn't been, and they haven't uh, reopened. And as a consequence, then the traveling public are the ones who are being forced to uh, to uh, bear the burden. It, you can get processed, but you'll have to go to the United States to be processed, and that's, of course, uh, senseless. Now, the suggestion's been made that instead of having in-person interviews, this is the big issue, 
then why can't it be done by video, which would make a lot of sense and would be more efficient than what we had before. The answer on that is that it would require change to the American legislation. And because Congress is so dysfunctional in terms of passing legislation, nobody knows how long that would take. So the question is, what would we do in the interim? And would we require one of the two governments to be willing to compromise? And so far, neither of the two governments is willing to, to compromise at all. And as I mentioned as well, about 60 different associations have signed on to this letter. Uh, There are a lot of airport authorities, uh, tourism groups, chambers of commerce. The importance of this program or how important is it for mainly for Canada, but for both countries that this program remain in place? It's very important. It's important from an economic point of view because we want to encourage travel, both business travel and, and tourism. It's important for the convenience of our of our citizens that the border be made as, as fluid as possible for uh, low-risk people who are legitimate travelers. It's important for our two countries that our citizens know one another and that we deepen the ties between the two countries, and it's important for the governments. The simple fact is that these programs save the government money by enabling us to take low-risk people out of the line, process them quickly, and then to use our limited security resources to focus on people who have not been processed as as low-risk. So it is lose, lose, lose to do what the two governments are doing right now. And this letter, again, as mentioned, it's going to officials both in Canada, the Minister of Public Safety, as well as the Secretary of Homeland Security. In your mind, if somebody blinks or if somebody takes this to heart and realizes, yeah, we need to move on this, how quickly could could that happen? If, if they were willing to, to budge, it could happen this afternoon. The challenges that so far both sides are dug in, and we run a very real risk that at some point the Americans will simply say, look, 70 or 80 percent of the somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of the people who are using the program are Canadians. It's not that important to us. Uh, We're going to pull out of it and we'll let Canadians simply line up with everybody else under the U.S. Global Entry Program. That would mean that we would lose the program that we use for domestic trusted travelers in Canada, and it would mean that we would lose a bespoke program that's designed by our two countries and have to line up with everybody else for a program that was strictly an American program that the Americans would have the right to change the rules on at any time. Uh, That would be very unfortunate. Is it safe to say then, is it more important, do you think, for Canada and for Canadians to have this program more so than the United States? Um, there are more Canadians who participated in the, than the United States than there are Americans, pardon me. Uh, and also this program is used for d- to certify domestic travel as well in Canada, whereas the Americans don't use it for that. So Canada does have, have more at stake than the U.S. Uh, what's the next step? It's, uh, certainly oh. beneficial to both. It's certainly right. beneficial to both countries and both economies and both sets of citizens. And what's the next step for you or for you, for your organization if we, we don't see any movement on this in the near future? To continue to, to raise uh, concerns at the public level with both governments to say, look, it's time to act like adults and to simply fix this. It doesn't make sense. The issues at stake are not so fundamental that you can't find common ground uh, 
François-Philippe Champagne, the, the Minister of Innovation in Canada, was in Washington a couple of weeks ago, and he said, this should be easily uh, resolvable. I agree with him. And now we need governments to to actually act and make it happen. All right. Perrin Beatty, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. My pleasure. It's an important issue, and I'm, I'm glad to have a chance to talk about it. Well, the last lunar eclipse of this year is taking place very, very soon. And this might be the last lunar eclipse for quite some time. So we wanted to talk a little bit more about what exactly is going to be taking place and the best place to see that. Joining us to talk about that is Gary Boyle, an astronomy educator, also known as the Backyard Astronomer. Gary, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. Good afternoon. Uh, what exactly is going to be happening? And if I've got the timing right, it's is it the early hours of, of Tuesday? Uh, that's correct, yes. Yeah. So stay up tonight because starting at, at 109 Pacific time, the full beaver moon will move into the Earth's shadow. And the total eclipse begins at about 2.16 a.m. with the whole event ending at 4.50 a.m. And then it's time for breakfast. <laughs> what, what else could you possibly want to do after such an exciting uh, night of watching this? Uh, exactly. Uh, so, so when you talk about, so you used the phrase there, beaver moon. What is that? Well, every, every month of the Farmer's Almanac has a name associated. We're all used to the hunter's moon and the harvest moon. Well, the one for November is the beaver moon. December is the coal moon and so on. And it's really to do with the, 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 the month, um, what's, I guess, the most popular thing that is, such as you'll never have a strawberry moon in December and not a cold moon in May. So, uh, so we have all, all different names, and uh, it uh, gives a, a little more relationship to, uh, to the good old moon that's up in the sky. All right. I've also heard this one referred to or, or talk about a blood moon. Is that another name for it? Well, the blood moon, because it turns reddish, that orangey brown color, and through antiquity, there was a lot of superstition with uh, when the moon turned red because they had no idea what was happening a few hundred years ago. And they always would associate with something bad happening, a disease or a war, just something really bad was going to happen. But now we know that really the color is due to the sunlight refracting through Earth's atmosphere. Just like we see the beautiful sunsets, those nice orange sunsets. Well, if you're on the moon during the total eclipse, the moon's bathed in orange because you're looking back at the Earth, see this ring of uh, this circle around the Earth being our atmosphere. You, you would look at every sunset on the left-hand side and every sunrise on the right-hand side at the exact same time. Hmm, that would be something, wouldn't it? It would. <laughs> um, you kind of uh, explained this, but what exactly, if people are going to be up at uh, those early morning hours and looking at this, what exactly are we looking at? What is happening? Well, the sun and the earth always, well, the earth has a shadow behind it, just like uh, um, when the sun sets over here behind a tree, you have a long shadow. Well, we have a shadow that's cast behind the earth. As the moon goes around the earth once every 29 and a half days, it does on a bit of a tilt. So some months the full moon is above that cone of darkness, that shadow, other times below it. This time it's going right through. And the shadow is really three and a half times the width of the moon, so the entire event will take three hours and 40 minutes in this case. 
And I mentioned as well, so people will be able to see this overnight tonight or in the early hours of Tuesday. But I also understand, so this is going to be the last lunar eclipse for, for some time. Why is that? And, and when might the next one be? Well, it's going to be the last total lunar eclipse. The next will take place in March of 2025. But the Earth sees or plays a part in one or two eclipses per year. But not every eclipse just like the solar eclipse, is completely total. Sometimes we have partial eclipses. So we're going to have a partial lunar eclipse in 2023, where about 20% of the moon will um, move into your shadow in 2024, and about 15%. So the next true total one with the blood moon put in, in air bunnies will be in 2025. 2025. All right. Um, and where we know the time that this is going to be happening. Uh, the forecast for Metro Vancouver looks like it's going to be pretty clear tonight. Maybe a few clouds. It's going to be cold, about minus one. Are there places or where should people go if they kind of want to get the best viewing place or spot to see this happen? Well, really, it's just, just a full moon turning darker, so you don't really need country skies. Although in saying that, any astrophotographer out there might want to take some longer exposures because just to the left of the moon is constellation Orion and all of the, the brighter winter stars. We have Mars, which is above Orion, the, the orangey color of Mars, which should be closest to Earth next month. And if people want to take you know, a 30-second image on a DSLR uh, camera, the cell phones work, but not the best. So if they really want to get part of the Milky Way if, if they can head up the country skies, but it's not a must. All right. Is that something you do or do you get do you ever get tired of looking at these things? Oh, never got tired. <laughs> I started astronomy when I was eight years old and for the last 57 years, never never stopped looking up. I have a, a very encouraging wife, just married 40 years that allows me to do my passion and that's why I even have an asteroid named after me for just outreach and uh, pursuing my my love of, of the night sky. Oh well, that's pretty pretty amazing. So, will you be watching the uh, this eclipse? Yes, I'll be watching. But unfortunately, here in uh, eastern Ontario and uh, in western Quebec, it starts at four oh nine. So we will not see the end part of the eclipse. The as the moon is moving out of the shadow, it's going below the horizon. So oh. we'll see about three quarters of it from here. All right. Well, Gary, thank you so much. Great to chat with you and to get this, uh, what's happening. And now we know uh, the times uh, where to see it and such. Thank you so much for your time today. Take care, Jill. Clear skies. (laughs) All right. You too. Well, this is a story, I think, that really, for many people, has them shaking their head and wondering, yes, we have a legal system with rules when it comes to bail and rules when it comes to releasing people from custody, but does that system perhaps need an overhaul? If you heard this story on the news, a suspect accused in a random Vancouver lobby attack is now back in custody after, according to Vancouver police, he was arrested for breaching his bail conditions. Bryce Michael Flores 
Torres Bevington was out on bail with two sex assault charges, an assault charge and a charge of uttering threats pending. He was arrested just 24 hours after he was released from jail. And this was because a Vancouver police officer who was working near Burrard and Pender Street on Saturday afternoon observed the person that he believed to be the suspect and observed this person breaching one of those court-ordered bail conditions. So the suspect, who is a 19-year-old, was rearrested and was taken back to jail. And if you're wondering about the crimes he is accused of, the one attack we're talking about, it took place in the lobby of an apartment building in Yaletown, and that happened on October 3rd. And those details at the time we talked about the fact that a woman had allegedly been followed into the building. She was then thrown to the ground, and that's when a group of strangers actually intervened and helped hold the suspect until police arrived. Well, we wanted to talk more about this. Angela Marie McDougall is the executive director of the Battered Women's Support Society and joins us on the line now. Angela, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity to join you. It's been a while. It has been a while. And unfortunately, it's often stories like this or similar topics. But it's so important to talk more about this because I do think people will look at this and and think, why was this person on the streets? Mm -hmm. Why was this person released? And when you hear these details, what goes through your mind? Well, I mean, honestly, Jill, it's, um, it's you know it's so discouraging on on so many levels when you think about how just how and many of us as women how we are concerned about our safety and uh, you know and just how much we limit our activities in small small and large ways because we're worried about this kind of stranger sex assault so Joe it's so discouraging uh, just to see that we really don't have a handle on how to respond with to stranger assaults uh, and this case is chilling, of course, uh, but it gives us, um, you know, information on how limiting the criminal legal system is in really addressing sexualized violence. And do you think it should be different then as far as, and I've even noticed in the wording, when when police let us know that people have been released on bail or people mm-hmm. have been, you know, they're released because that's the way the law works. And even putting in, in the news releases, mm-hmm. as per our legislation, this person has been released. Mm-hmm. D- does it need to be overhauled or looked at in that maybe that's not? Yes, we know people have a right to be released on bail, but are we looking closely enough? at the, the types of charges that people are facing and, and the, what, they're, what they are accused of doing? Well, I like to take that, that whole picture and put it into a, even a bigger context and going to the point around prevention uh, and the efforts that we need to do around pre, you know, preventing. We need to talk about rehabilitation for those that perpetrate. And, and, I, and I think that's what's intended in the legislation that the VPD spoke to is that we that there is a desire to help uh, men that are doing harm in this case a very young man relatively uh, to get help and but what we don't have yet and I'm hoping that that will change if we continue to advocate is is you know is the opportunity to help people uh, get heal and get better as well as uh, the part around incarceration because it's it's not going to be sufficient for us just to you know lock people up and throw away the key that is not that's not the roots of the Canadian legal system it's been really based on wanting to have this rehabilitation component but what we don't have yet 
sufficiently is that side of it. And that, you know, and I think that speaks to everything that we've been talking about in terms of mental health and substance use. You know, we have to have a bigger response beyond uh, police and jails. Is there a sense, do you think, or is there, for, because we haven't focused on that so much in the past, that, that people think it's not possible and, and that rehabilitation isn't, isn't something that's even attainable? Well, it hasn't been tried sufficiently. I mean, that's been part of the, the problem is there, is there has never been the investment in the prevention and in the treatment of any of these social problems. We are, however, looking to put more and more F, you know, money and resources into police and jails, which I understand there's a portion of the population that you know, wants that. Like, let's lock them up and throw away the key. And, you know, and I, I get that that's part of it. And I, you know, and I, certain, I certainly don't want to get attacked in the, in, you know, in the lobby of the building that I live in. And nobody wants that. And, you know, it's going to take more. And this is the really, are, are we prepared as a society to dig in and look at the roots and, and really address things, uh, 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 you know, from a prevention, from a treatment, from an intervention that includes police, that includes um, incarceration, includes a lot of things. Like, I want a society that's going to look at all of that. And because here's a young man, I got to ask the question, what happened to him? Hurt people hurt people. Something happened to this young man. He's too young to be doing this stuff. Believe me. It's quite alarming, actually, to think he's only 19 years old. Like, what happened to him? And, you know, and, and where, you know, wh- where is the accountability around the harm that was done to him as well? And we have, you know, there's a lot there. And I, and I think we as a society need to be looking at it all and being prepared to take those bold steps, to, to do that work that's going to be about the prevention and the treatment and obviously the public safety. It's a really interesting point, and I think you're right. We don't focus on that so much, and somebody doesn't wake up one day and decide, oh, I know what I'm going to do today. I'm going to go attack a bunch of people, or I'm going to go beat a bunch of people up. And again, I should mention, this person has been charged, not convicted. But you're right. How does somebody get to that stage, and and how do you intervene? Well, and that's it, because we have to note that, you know, it it appears as though this individual allegedly has been attacking women. And when we talk about the stranger attacks, they've been largely uh, women, and many of the women have been of color. Uh, You know, in terms of Asian women, have have bore the brunt of a lot of the stranger assaults that have happened in the last few years. So, you know, there's there's many layers of of intervention here that I think we should do as a society. And and this is another wake-up call. Uh, And we have to think beyond, you know, in addition to looking at enforcement, you know, and I, I knew he was going to breach. I knew he allegedly breached the, you know, the the bill conditions because, unfortunately, this this young person that's, you know, this is appears to be, you know, allegedly what he does. So I I wasn't surprised to see that he was got that he got picked up quickly. But you know, we have a, we have an opportunity here uh, with the new, uh, you know, mayor and council, with the new provincial government. Uh, with a national action plan on gender-based violence that I hope is going to be announced very soon from the federal government to, you know, really push for some meaningful change, like meaningful change, Joe, that's going to allow us to look at the roots of the problem, address the roots, build in the interventions so that we're not just thinking about police and jails as the only solution, because that's not going to help, because we will bump into the other piece, which is the part that frustrates, obviously, the police and frustrates people, is that the accused have rights and in their rights often appear to be trumped over victims' safety. Uh, do you think, though, or 
when when you talk to to people and when you you are in the city and it's not just Vancouver, it's other parts of Metro mm-hmm. Vancouver as well. Though yeah. I mean, when I talk to people and and I would even put myself in this group, I do not feel as safe walking around the city mm-hmm. as I did a few years ago. So, what is it? Do you think has changed? Well, I think the pandemic uh, did a lot to change uh, things, Joel. Uh, we had a regression in uh, some of the you know the social contracts that I think we had. Uh, it wasn't I and you know wasn't idyllic certainly, um, but we've had a regression. Violence against women, gender-based violence, is up. And I want to make note: these stranger assaults are men, men attacking women. Like honestly, it's mostly men attacking women. And that's the part that we have to recognize. This is not, um, this is men attacking women. And so there, this speaks to the, the piece around the, the part of the culture, and by the culture, I mean Canadian culture, that we haven't addressed, which is about misogyny and, you know, and where race intersects with that. And we lost ground, Jill. The last three years, uh, there's been a erosion in gender equity, any, any gender equity equality gains that we thought we made up until 2020 that have been eroded in fairly significant ways, which I think is what we're seeing right now with the stranger assaults. But it also has to do with the other issues around housing and mental health. And, you know, and so I think we're seeing the results of uh, the, you know, the convergence of a few pandemics. Um, and the fact that we haven't invested in, in the change that we all knew, those of us that are working to end gender-based violence, knew needed to be made you know, prior to 2020. Uh, so that's what I think is underway. And the question is, can we expand our vision beyond police and jails to really understand the roots of these social problems and take a- action to, re- to address them? Right, right. And like you said, too, it, it can't be the only uh, the only thing. Although I do wonder also when we talk about and I, and I get that, too, that we're not going to arrest everybody. And, and like you said, throw everybody in jail, throw away the key and, and call it a day and say we've solved everything. But I wonder, too, if somebody is in that situation or that scenario where mm. where they are attacking people or they are they are assaulting people. And if you know the punishment isn't going to be that bad, then is there not a mindset of, well, what do I have to lose? Well, for sure. And, you know, and this is this is so hard because, you know, I, and you mentioned about feeling less safe. I've, you know, I've started my daughter, you know, I'm, I'm a woman of African descent. Um, my daughter is a, you know, also a woman of African descent. I've started to warn her, like, you know, be careful. Like, I, you know, which I haven't done in really that I think of except me when she was a youth. Uh, so, you know, I do have that sense there's, there's more uh, chances of, of stranger assault against her or, than before. But here's the thing. Uh, you know, we, um, you know, this this young person, and he's 19 years old apparently. This is um, this is a very young person, and this I, I, we, I, I, I really have to wrap our heads around what is happening for young people that there's this sense that you can do this violence. And guess what? Going to jail isn't going to stop that violence. And and we're in that and the way the legislation works, this individual wouldn't go to jail long enough to rehabilitate anything uh, and would at some point be coming back out on the streets. So we have to think about these things bigger than the, than just, and you know, and, and I'm talking about a long game, of course. Um, and, you know, and the short game is uh, this, you know, I guess this revolving door that I'm hearing people talk about. Uh, and so it's a big problem that I'm actually hoping that we can have some real leadership, not only about the law and order, but about the, about the other social components that's going to come from the council, that's going to come from the province, and that's going to come from the federal government when it releases its national action plan on gender-based violence. 
All right. Well, we will wait and see and hopefully talk more about this at that point. Angela Marie McDougall, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you again.